Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. This week started off with a horrible tragedy in Mexico as nine U.S. citizens, three women, and six children from a prominent local Mormon family were killed by drug cartel gunmen. Authorities in Mexico say that it may have been a case of mistaken identity, and the real targets were a rival drug cartel. For more on this story, we spoke to Pilar Melendez. She's a reporter at the Daily Beast. Three sectors of this family and three different cars were heading. Um, one was going to Phoenix and one was going to see some more family in Chihuahua, which is a little bit more north. And they were ambushed of the three vehicles and with 14 children in between, only eight of them have survived. Five of them are currently in Phoenix seeking treatment. We don't really know right now the extent of their injuries, but the Mexican authorities have been pretty on the ball trying to figure out what's been happening. They've said that it's probably a case of mistaken identity, that probably some local drug cartels thought it was a rival gang and ambushed them. Some reports are coming out right now that these Women were pretty vocal that they weren't members of a cartel, but were shot anyway. Mexican authorities have not confirmed any of that, but have said that they are pursuing all leads at this time. Now, these three cars were not all together. There was a few miles separating them. Police has said they found about 200 spent shell casings from assault rifles and other weapons at these various crime scenes. The reports coming out of what happened seem horrible They said that there was a child that was shot as they were running away. There was eight people that survived the attack. I mean, a lot of those were children, and they had to hide on the side of a road. And I think one of them was a 13-year-old boy who covered his siblings with brush there so they wouldn't be detected. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is horrible stuff we're hearing. It's really terrible. And the fact that these kids, I mean, 13 years old, trying to take care of his six other siblings, walking 14 miles to their camp in La Mora, and then his six-year-old sister, scared that his older brother had died, went out to go look for him and got lost. It took authorities several hours to find this nine-year-old and the rest of these six other siblings. A lot of them injured themselves. It's all pretty terrible. And the fact that we don't know what's going on, a lot of these family members that I've spoken to today are making it pretty clear that they're very peaceful and they have made no efforts to cause any trouble with local cartels, and this wasn't a direct attack, but just senseless violence. What have we heard from officials? I know President Trump is ready to declare war on the cartels. He's just waiting for the president of Mexico to ask for help in that sense. But the president of Mexico himself says, you know, we don't need that. We're going to handle this ourselves. What has he been saying about this? The Mexican president's been pretty clear about the fact that he doesn't want any U.S. help. He's saying that that would just cause war and that's the worst thing. He did say, though, that he was planning to call President Trump today to discuss the massacre because some of these victims are dual citizens. But he said that he is trying to do everything with local authorities and he's trying very hard not to include the United States in any way other than a passive information. 
Tell us a little bit about the Mormon family that has settled there for some time now. Early reports are that they're kind of an offshoot of the Church of Latter-day Saints. They're unaffiliated with them, and they moved yeah. into Mexico so they could practice polygamy, although a lot of reports say that has since faded even from these other groups. But this family in particular, the LeBaron family, has been there for a long time, and they've even had problems in the past with cartel members. As you mentioned, the fundless Mormon communities that are in northern Mexico right now started coming from the United States in the late 1880s because they wanted to practice polygamy that was obviously abolished around that time. The family members that I've spoken to that are part of the LeBaron family say that they don't really practice polygamy anymore. There's obviously some offshoots in the Mormon community in Mexico, but they do not themselves practice it. The LeBaron family itself is pretty well known. From what I'm gathering, in 2009, Eric LeBaron, who was one of the wealthier family members there, was kidnapped in a stance to detain any other kidnappings in the future. The LeBaron family refused to pay his $1 million ransom, and he was eventually released. But then only a couple months later, his brother, Benjamin, so in July 2009, was fatally beaten and shot to death in front of his family for his stance against anti-violence and for refusing to pay his brother's ransom. So in terms of turmoil between local cartel factions and the LeBaron family, they're pretty high right now. So I, I think a lot of family members that I've spoken to want to make it known that they haven't done anything to provoke this. Right. And this is just a senseless hit. Pilar Melendez, reporter at the Daily Beast. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. As the impeachment inquiry continues to be underway, new developments as House Democrats have announced that public hearings will begin next week with testimony from three State Department officials that have already testified behind closed doors. And in other news, Donald Trump Jr. has tweeted out the name of the alleged whistleblower whose identity has been circling around in some conservative media outlets. To break all the latest information down, we spoke to Hayes Brown. He's the host of the Impeachment Today podcast. Up until this point, people have not really been tracking very well exactly what's happening, especially since, as Republicans have been saying repeatedly, it's happening behind closed doors. Right. So we've been getting drips and drops coming out of like, OK, this person said this and this person said that. But now... Uh, we've been moving into the phase that people are familiar with when they think about impeachment, the, the part where people sit in front of Congress and tell their story in front of cameras with people asking questions of them. And I think that this is going to be much more interesting than people tend to expect with um, congressional hearings. Yeah. Well, more and less. So when you, know, you hear congressional hearings, if you're a nerd, you think, ah, oh, just a bunch of Congress people kind of bloviating, asking long winded questions that are more about being on TV. Right. But this time. It's lawyers opening the show, 45 minutes for either side, just the lawyers, the majority and minority asking the witnesses questions. So right off the bat, it's going to be much more informative than a lot of people are used to for these sorts of hearings. And there's going to be fireworks. Both sides are very heated on this. So there will be some fireworks. And yeah, it's going to be some must watch TV once these really get started. I wanted to talk briefly about some of the testimony that we've already heard transcripts that have been released by Democrats. As you said, you know, a lot of this is behind closed doors. One is Gordon Sondland, who at first testified, oh, there was no quid pro quo. Then he added an addendum to his testimony that said, well, maybe it was kind of a quid pro quo. <laughs> exactly that. So Democrats and uh, other observers outside of uh, Congress were like, 
they noticed that he was saying that he couldn't really remember a lot of details when asked about them, that things happened, but he couldn't give you dates or he wasn't really sure if he could recall that correctly. But after being confronted with other people's testimony, he did send that in addendum and said, ah, yeah, go with what they said. That sounds like <laughs> it's probably right. Right. We'll, we'll stick with what they said. So it's clear that he's trying to make sure he's not putting himself at risk of perjury while also trying to not have the bus run over him because he's someone who was for Trump. Then he was against Trump briefly. Then he donated a million dollars to Trump's inauguration committee in order to try and get the wheel spinning for this ambassadorship that he received to the European Union. And now he's in this mess. He's hardly a never Trumper, as the president would say. He put himself right in the middle of it. He said, yeah, I delivered the message basically that there's not Mm -hmm. going to be any military aid unless you guys make this statement, unless you say that we are investigating Burisma and Ukraine's involvement in the 2016 election. He put himself there. And as you mentioned, after testimony from other people, so kind of a tough position to get out of. He actually said during his testimony, you can see it in the transcript, said, I'm having a really bad time right now. It's like, oh, wow, no. yes, you are my guy. <laughs> I wanted to talk about the whistleblower because this is a supremely important part of this whole thing. The impeachment inquiry got kicked off because of the whistleblower complaint. His name has been floating around for a little bit now. The mainstream media has not wanted to put his name out there, although it's been out there. The president's son, Donald Trump Jr., tweeted a link out with his name. So people are starting to find out a little bit more about him. How important is it still to protect his identity with all this? I mean, his name is going to be out there, but I also feel on the flip side, we're getting so much more testimony from people that have been in the room now that were on that call that kind of corroborate everything. They're all saying there was a quid pro quo. I mean, really, does it matter now that we know who he is? Yes and no. No, it doesn't matter because like you said, we've had all these people who are giving testimony. They were in the room. They were part of the decisions. They saw live what was happening that the whistleblower described second and third hand, which has been a big complaint about who is the whistleblower. They didn't see it. We've got all these people saying it now. But it absolutely does matter to protect their name right now because whistleblower laws are in place that keep anonymity to protect that person from retribution. Because this is a person who, once that name is officially out there, they will be getting death threats. They will be getting hatred. They will be doxxed. Absolutely. Their address will be published. It's really just disheartening to watch members of the Senate, like Rand Paul and Donald Trump Jr., try to push this name out there when, according to all legitimate reports so far. This person is a career CIA official who has worked for both administrations, who saw something wrong and said something, which is that not what we want people inside the government to do when they see something is being done wrong, they say something about it and they don't get punished for it. Hayes, you're doing a daily podcast about the impeachment. It's called Impeachment Today. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing, because there's so much going on. And I've heard a few of the episodes already. And you guys are kind of wrapping up what's happening daily with this in a very neat package. Tell us a little bit about it. Like you said, we're trying to get this to like 10 to 15 minutes a day, but there's so much news. It tends to be closer to 20, going to be honest with you. (laughs) And we're just trying to make sure that we're getting the facts in front of the people, making sure that they can understand what's going on in a clear, accessible, hopefully entertaining way. So when they hear the name Gordon Sondland, they know who that is. So that when we do get to the point that these hearings are happening, they can listen back and hear like, okay, so let's listen to the deep dive on who Marie Yovanovitch is, which we actually put up on Wednesday. So if you want to go back and listen, do that. So we're really hoping to make this into something that people actually use and need to listen to as the impeachment saga moves forward. 
It's posted early every morning, Monday through Friday. So everybody take a listen because it does really set you up for what's going to happen that day. And as I said, something's happening every single day with this inquiry. Hayes Brown, reporter and editor at BuzzFeed News and host of the Impeachment Today podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Did you know that your students are being watched? Student surveillance services are constantly monitoring the emails, homework assignments, pictures, and even chats of students for any sign that they might be a danger to themselves or others. One such service that is monitoring about 4.8 million students across the country is called Gaggle. For this story, we spoke to Caroline Haskins, tech reporter for BuzzFeed News, about how Gaggle is watching everything your kids are doing. I feel like it's important to note that being a student in 2019 means having like not just a school email address, but having a school associated either a Google G Suite or Microsoft 365. So this means that when you're making like documents, calendar events, spreadsheets, PowerPoints, or talking to your friends, like all of this is associated with your school account. So where Gaggle comes into the picture is it uses two in-house artificial intelligence scanners to go over pretty much any keystroke or anything that a student does as a part of school. So for instance, it has a text scanner and it's looking for things like profanity, references to harassment, but it's also looking to predict things like self-harm or like suicidal ideation. And it's also scanning images for possible pornography, whether it's like professional or student produced. It's important to note that a lot of kids don't really realize the extent to which they're being watched. To some degree, we're kind of mindful of what we say over email, but if a student says like a curse word in a Google Doc a couple of Mm -hmm. times, it'll get flagged to school administrators. So it's really bringing the whole idea of total surveillance of of a child to new heights. And while Gaggle has been around for a long time, it's been in business since 98, it's expanded in recent years to be compatible with like Google G Suite and Microsoft. 365 and such, and to offer all of these services. And in exchange, it's promising schools that it's not only going to help kids become digital citizens or be mindful of what they do online, but there's telling schools that it can help them save student lives. It says in the last year, we've prevented 722 student suicides. And it's a very enticing claim to make for a school. But as I sort of went over in my article, certain privacy experts have sort of raised the alarm on this logic of surveillance. Is there any type of opt out or opt in situation for this? I mean, if a school signs up for this, they're going to pay for the service. It's on, it's working. But for individual students, can they opt out if their families want to? So Gaggle does technically offer an opt-out option, but the reality is that it's kind of technically difficult to implement. So for instance, if you opt out of Gaggle, you won't be able to use your school email. You won't be able to use Google Calendar, Google Drive, anything associated with school. You won't be able to use that if you don't agree to be monitored by Gaggle. On a practical level, it's kind of unclear how that works because in a lot of school districts today, if you're a student, you have to use these accounts. So the opt-out option technically exists, but it's It's not exactly clear how it would work like in practice. And this is only official school use platforms. I mean, it's not tapping into a student's social media or cell phone, is it? 
Another BuzzFeed News report sort of covered different services that school can use to scan students' private social media. And Gaggle, while it doesn't monitor kids' social media, if a kid hooks up, for instance, their Twitter account or some other notifications to something associated with school, then Gaggle will pull that information in. And sometimes in cases that I saw and reviewed, this could also mean seeing private chats and DMs from people who don't even go to that school. The system is set up to flag all sorts of different types of content, things in the context of possible self-harm, you know, words like suicide, cut myself, end my life, bullying Mm -hmm. and harassment, kill you, abusing me, and even other questionable content that's a little more general. When the system flags a student for this, it almost works kind of like the Facebook content moderating where they have a level one team set up to flag low level Mm -hmm. stuff and, and it gets passed up the ladder to different levels and in varying circumstances of severity also. A lot like Facebook, Gaggle does have a team of content moderators. They always have a couple people on the job 24-7, and that's the big selling point that they sell to schools. So their level one representatives, their job is to basically go over anything and everything that's flagged by Gaggle and determine if it's a false positive or not. So if a student, for instance, like quotes To Kill a Mockingbird, then the moderators are supposed to say, oh, that's a false positive. It doesn't matter. But they're also supposed to go through like all of these other different things. And usually these people are paid about $10 an hour. They're contract employees, meaning they can work anywhere. And they're not officially entitled to certain company benefits like health insurance and such. And if there's an instance of like questionable content, meaning something that could involve bullying or what Gaggle calls a possible student situation, which means a student is at so-called imminent risk of being harmed, that means it's flagged to a level two representative. And Gaggle didn't get into detail about what sorts of qualifications these level two associates are required to have, but they're supposed to review the things that could possibly involve a more serious situation with a student. This program is not cheap. It can cost anywhere from 12000 to $60,000, possibly. Their big selling point, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, they said they saved 722 lives. Most of those, I think, were suicides that they could have possibly prevented there. And you mentioned this whole notion that critics might have of the surveillance state and not really letting students make mistakes, things like that. But what do parents say about this? So the interesting thing is that Gaggle does not have to get permission from parents in order to operate within a school system. So it's likely the case that a lot of parents don't even know that this is happening behind the scenes. And obviously, it makes sense from the standpoint of student administrators. They're not exactly an employer in that student makes them money, but it does benefit them to know more about students because as one of the experts that I talked to, Sarah Igo said, schools are kind of this training house for the person. And so especially when you start involving topics like suicide, which are obviously really difficult to tackle. And so when Gaggle is saying we can possibly offer a solution, then it's a tempting offer for schools. But as some of the experts pointed out, there's risks in escalating situations too early. Like one of the adolescent mental health experts that I spoke with pointed out that if a student's suicidal ideations is escalated to teachers or even to the police at the improper time, that could worsen their symptoms or even make them less likely to reach out for help. So a lot of this and dealing with adolescent mental health is about like making sure that the appropriate power is in the hands of the student to sort of like take charge of their own care, so to speak. And the thing about Gaggle is that it's extremely well-intentioned in that it really genuinely does want to like help 
save student lives. But the question is, is it actually doing that? Is it actually helping students trust in doctors, authority, and healthcare systems in the long term? And that's a little bit more unclear. Carolyn Haskins, technology reporter at BuzzFeed News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.